Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which is now so long ago, actually, that in those days, people wanted to be rich. They looked up to the rich. Yeah, they didn't just want to mock them. In fact, I think your idol at the time was uh, Bill Gates, Tom. (laughs) This week, we're talking about The White Lotus, whose second season dropped last month to the sheer delight of White Lotus fans uh, from season one. Um, the White Lotus is a, I think it's, is it Hulu or HBO? HBO. Show? It's HBO um, that tracks a constellation of rich people on holiday at a luxury resort known as The White Lotus. They had a, the first season is in Hawaii at The White Lotus there. This one is in Taormina in Sicily. And I think it is the best TV I have ever seen. Okay, forcing Gossip Girl to come a close second. There's something amazing about the way it skewers rich people and their concerns, but also doesn't dehumanize them. Um, The setting is fabulous. Tom, why is the White Lotus a big deal? Is this just some obscure interest of mine or is this actually a cultural phenomenon? This is a cultural phenomenon. I think a lot of critics would say this is the best television of the year. The Guardian ran a headline saying this immaculate show's writing is utterly unrivaled. And I do think the writing is spectacular. The characterization, as you say, is nuanced, is multifaceted. It's a comedy, I think, and in a way, my frustration with it at moments was it was a bit too close to farce. It felt like a kind of sex farce for large parts of it. Um, but it does also have something to say about uh, the, wor- the world of the super wealthy, the whole question about travel and tourism and what it's really for, and also our complicity as viewers. The whole thing is a seduction. You know, it's about seduction, but it's also seducing us as viewers, and it plays around with our expectations. Um, so, yeah, I do, I do think it's brilliant. Um, to start, I suppose, one of the, the kind of big subjects, I suppose, that it's about is the world of the super wealthy. Um, do you think there's a trend here, Zoe, of wanting to have these shows in which we sort of ogle and we have a sort of voyeuristic relationship with the consumption habits and the lifestyles of the super rich and we enjoy some of their discomfort and some of their downfall? Yeah, and there's a really interesting counterpoint there to the longer running fixation with reality TV following like Vanderpump Rules or whatever and the Real Housewives series and the Kardashians. And there's this very worshipful cult around rich people on reality TV. But meanwhile, over in drama, there has been a a, a sort of clearly a new interest in watching them squirm. I think Parasite was kicked was the sort of starting gun for this new moment of fascination but loathing at the same time uh parasite obviously the korean oscar winning film that saw these uh hustling poor people from seoul infiltrate an extremely wealthy family and ultimately kill them uh basically but uh i think that was to me a pretty heartless i I didn't actually like that because i i don't really like the idea of necessarily killing the rich just because they're rich (laughs) But I think what what is nice about the White Lotus is that it it channels the fascination with 
the rich, but it does something much more interesting with it than I think even Succession, which is the other obviously epic example of this in recent years, does. I couldn't actually watch Succession because I found everyone was horrible. So I lost interest dramatically. This one, they're human and it's their humanness that gets caught up in the wealth of these two conflicting things and forces, I suppose. But, but sometimes they come together and sometimes they pull apart. I think we also just love watching beautiful, you know, it's nice looking at beautiful things. It's it's always fun watching people uh, in lovely surroundings. I mean, so so there is a kind of complicity there. Uh, and as I say, for me, the thing that makes The White Lotus, especially season two, special that it doesn't fall for the trap of just, I don't think it is actually farce, Tom. I think it's actually a bit more sophisticated than a farce. I think the, the the tensions that appear that they might be farcical, like going on holiday with your nightmare friends, turns out, turn all turn out to be much more complicated. The friends aren't nightmares. They bring out really interesting things. It's a show about what happens when you're stuck together with another group for a week. It brings out all these different character, you know, traits and tensions and thoughts and realizations. So yeah, it's that complexity that, that does it for me. I think it's also the way that it's given this kind of luscious cultural wrapping. So I agree with you that there have been lots of other satires aimed at the super rich. Another one to add to your list, of course, would be Triangle of Sadness, this year's kind of Palm Door winning prize at Cannes, which is about the rich being stuck on a yacht, having a terrible time, and again, being served up as, as a sort of satire. And um, what this does, which I thought was great, is the way it works with the locations. And um, the writer, Mike White, is clearly interested in using all of the stereotypes, but also some of the cultural baggage of the places where the story's set. So when he did the Hawaii one, it was all about American relations with kind of local and indigenous communities. And it was a kind of post-colonial kind of exploration or a sort of post-colonial satire in a way of the relationship between the tourists and the staff and the, the locals and so on. In this case, he's wrapping it up in this kind of gorgeous um, Sicilian setting, which means that the whole thing is so Baroque. I mean, I loved the use of all of the um, you know, 17th and 18th century paintings of Lucretia, you know, all of the sense of old corruption in this in this kind of beautiful island setting. Taormina itself, you know, the more you know about Taormina, the more you think, oh, actually, there's a reason it's it's set here. D.H. Lawrence lived in Taormina for a little bit. And it was a it was a mecca for homosexuals at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, people like von Glurden spend all this time there. So it, it's always had this sort of sexual um or seedy kind of underbelly um and so choosing to set something there yes it's about the beautiful settings and so on but it suggests that there's also um a decadence and like this was such a brilliant take on old decadence a place that's sort of seeped in corruption and that comes back to the point you were saying about the, the glossiness of it zoe or the kind of that we're pulled in to this thing which actually under the surface there are some pretty ugly currents that are kind of stewing around and it and it kind of played with that, I thought, really, really beautifully. Um, what, what did you think of the the gender dynamics in it, Zoe? Because I guess there's been there has been criticism from the New York Times saying that the show is not feminist enough, for instance, that it it ends up not valorizing the female characters or kind of doing justice to them. I mean, I think that's a very weird way of looking at it. Frankly, I wonder if what the New York Times means is that there were prostitutes who were just overtly using their sexuality and they were you know not trying to have an identity out of it or make it an identity struggle but were just kind of doing their best with it and maybe that doesn't actually fit with the progressive um agenda in in an ironic way 
Um, I think the, I just, I actually think this is a one instance where gender is not really the right way of looking at it. I mean, I think, I think the mm -hmm. women were probably the most interesting characters by a long way. I think they were the most, uh, probably the more powerful simply through literally having positions of power, like Valentina, who is the hotel manager. Um, and in the end, you know, so the, the, the pairing between Portia and uh, Tanya is, is fun. And both of them have their own sort of their eyes open in different ways, eyes open and closed. They're both taken advantage of in different ways. But in the end, they you could argue that both of them um, come out on top. It, it, well, that, that that that's one way of describing it, despite a <laughs> tragic ending. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't I'm trying to even just think what else would be a problem. I mean, you get these two wives think... who are fabulously beautiful and interesting. Um, the, the husbands kind of look like bozos. Uh, I, it's yeah. What do you think, Tom? I think it's interesting because they sort of suggested that it's too much about the plight of the American man was the quote that I that sticks in my mind, that it was about sort of fragile and toxic masculinity and that that was the real subject and that women are as sort of um, supporting characters to that. I agree with you, I think it misses something. And I think what it misses, which is actually really interesting is the, the, the psychosexual dynamics that cut across gender, I suppose, that it's not simply about men feel this one way, one way about sexuality and women feel another, but actually how everybody is in this kind of battle for, for recognition, this desire to be desired um, and, the, and the kind of impossibility of that, of that position. Um, there was a fun piece by uh, Eli Zaretsky and LRB that's about the libidinal economy of the resort. And it's actually about the connections between sort of consumerism, capitalism that take place in White Lotus and the sexual economy. Um, that kind of the, the, the frisson that's sort of traveling around between all these characters that are constantly evaluating their own attractiveness against other people, constantly desiring other people's partners. And um, there's, there's a speech, um, indeed Cameron, uh, one of the one of the men in the couple talks about uh, or male Cameron and Ethan have got this battle with each other, this rivalry. Um, and they talk about mimetic desire. You know, that when they were at college, Cameron always fancied the girls that Ethan fancied because Ethan fancied them, that the girls became desirable because they were desired by another man. And there is. There is a way in which the, the kind of fascinating quartet at the heart of this is to do with the sort of seepage where and nobody's attractive in their own right intrinsically. Everyone's always attracted in relationship to how other people feel about them or how other people see them. Um, I think, I mean, what did you take any moral takeaways from it? Because, you know, it's interesting, as you say, the prostitutes are the real winners. It's a story about how the grifters and the kind of pretty cynical, but extremely kind of beguiling um, sex workers are able to outsmart and outplay everybody else in the resort. And um, what do you think it says about the the relationships that kind of court that those two couples that obviously are at the heart of it? Yeah. What does it say about the nature of trust in a relationship or the re the relationship between sex and love in a relationship in terms of how that story develops? Well, I mean, I think you're kind of bang on there um, to to sort of pick out the way that um, the the way desire is explored as an inherently relational social mm -hmm. thing you know it doesn't exist just exist and spring up out of nowhere it is often kind of to do with competition and masculinity um so i i was particularly struck you know 
again, ironic that it was accused of being sort of regressive for women. Daphne's response to um, her gorgeous hunk Cameron's, you know, infidelities that she knows about is to say, you know, to make it okay for herself. And so she says a couple of times to the other characters, do what you need to do to not feel like a victim. And this does not come across as the kind of desperate delusional thing of a of a woman who's being taken to the cleaners and is miserable it's it's she says she actually does seem empowered when she says it and she's so beautiful and so self-contained that it's actually very very interesting and it makes you think because you think you're being set up to pity her because she's got this kind of player of a husband but actually there's something a lot more subtle there which you don't often um you know this sort of it's very un-american actually the they speak almost mm-hmm. like spies in a john le carré novel they they code everything daphne's mm-hmm. Coded, and so is you know more in fact than Ethan and the other couple. So the the apparently brash nightmare co- you know couple who you know is the, Ethan's nightmare friend from college and his trophy wife. There they have a very very complicated way of communicating. So I think that was really interesting. I think the fact that again another moral plus. It's not really moral necessarily, but women are depicted as having self-starting desire in this. You know, women's libido is taken seriously. Um, but yeah. also the way that women use their sexuality is taken seriously. It's it's not by the by. It's it's looked at full frontal, to use the appropriate wording. You know, at the end, they they all turn out to be um, in it for, you know, everyone can be bought off. That's what it, that's yeah. what it kind of show the end kind of suggests. Um, you know, everything is about money. Which is a, has a whole very interesting sort of sociology to it. But that said, there's also people, you know, women like Portia ditching Albie, who's arguably yeah. way more, uh, you know, eligible. Because he's too nice. He's too nice. And she just The fancies. women want a bad boy. Like yeah. there is this, the women too want, as you say, dangerous sexuality. And they, the, the kind of the wokey, super kind of considerate, but slightly awkward young man Albie is nowhere near as interesting to her as bad boy Jack and I do think again it's honest about whether the kind of the language of being a kind of feminist man and a considerate man actually is that really what these women want and he's well, interested in exploring feminine desire that that isn't polite in that way well but at the end yes it is but at the end you know you get the feeling that him and Portia are you know Albie is obviously very attractive it's just that he's mm a feminist ally but he's he's he's, he he yes i think it explores the degree to which yeah the 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 feminist male uh can actually get what he wants because at the end of the day he's still a man he's he's horny and he wants you know whatever i think he's more at ease in his sexuality at the end like the experience with the sex worker you know what we see in that final scene just before he sees Porsche again is him joining his father and his grandfather who he'd previously denounced as sexist pigs in ogling uh, or ogling uh, the young Italian woman that passes them in the queue. In a way, you feel like this is somebody who's leaned into his heterosexuality. Um, and the experience, again, of being in Italy has been a kind of education of the senses. Yes. It's like, a, it, you know, it's very, again, going back to the heritage of Italy, it's like the Grand Tour. He had to go, basically, and kind of escape from puritanical Northern European or, you know, North American values and embrace something that's more earthy, that's more carnal, and learn something about himself through it. And hence the credits for the series with the beautiful 18th century decorations are all winking at that sense of Italy as a site of sexual self-transformation. Which is interesting, given that California also builds itself as that, and that's where they come from. They come from L.A., and, you know, the new world's attempt at sexuality is basically a hollow attempt to imitate that old world sexuality. But, Tom, I think another really 
I think another really crucial thing is to do with the fact that they're Americans in Sicily. That's a very particular mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Americans always, the way they deploy or position their heritage, whether it be Irish, Italian or Sicilian, we're kind of queued up to find them annoying. You know, that is, is there anything more annoying than Americans in Italy, specifically Americans in Sicily, going in search yeah, like of ancestry as the as this trio of men are? But do you think it ends up actually making them not as annoying as one might have thought as Americans in Sicily staying in a luxury hotel, thinking they're going to go and find their... um. They're they're kind of hidden Italian family. I think it's played for it's played for laughs, but there's also some pathos, you know, that they go back and try and find the family and instead they're met with incomprehension and they're kind of shooed away. And there's something I like the way it kind of exposed the bogusness of that idea of heritage or that kind of possibility of homecoming for these people, as you say, for whom, you know, that they really is very little linking them still to Sicily, but it's something that they're clinging on to. And um, I actually thought it was quite a sympathetic portrait of the three generations of men, uh, although they're all very flawed. Um, they, you know, they have some of the best lines, grandfather in particular, you know, that there's that lovely scene where the grandson and the grandfather are talking about whether it's legitimate for his grandfather just to still hit on young women, you know, age appropriate desire. And, you know, the young man is very kind of self-important about it and thinks it's shocking and the old man says look actually this is this is how kind of men are built it's he gives the classic conservative view that his desire hasn't aged and he has that brilliant line where he says look penises are always disgusting it's not just because i'm an old man that i've got a horrible penis he said it's a penis not a sunset yeah. um and there's just some there's some brilliant little bits of writing whereas you say everybody is being humanized um and that you see that these different masculine types have strengths and weaknesses, each of them. And it's only when you kind of think about them in juxtaposition, again, relationally, that's why the series is so clever, is it's constantly asking you to think about somebody's ethical or sexual choices in relationship to others. And you sort of see that complexity. And we have to talk um, about Tanya, okay, because she's, yeah. she's like arguably the, like so many people just loved her, played by Jennifer mm -hmm. Coolidge, who obviously is known as being Stifler's mom, the original MILF. <laughs> She's been a bit of a parody in these two. Incredibly rich, goes around not really knowing what to do with herself. Um, quite a diva, and apparently now has an assistant who's this character Portia. But I think you know, for her, it's not about you know. There is the sexuality in the sense that she has this husband who, Greg, who disappears, and you know, does Greg having an affair? That's her kind of ridiculous question throughout. But turns out something much darker is at play. But her thing that she falls for is the attentions of the Tom Hollander character, the gay yes. group of glamorous men who who enact a very cunning ploy involving whisking her to Palermo and giving her a phenomenal party in their insanely beautiful villa. And that's about something else. That's about not discovering sensuality. That's about her feeling like she's interesting, um, glamorous. I don't know. What 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 do you make of the Tanya storyline? I, again, I think you're absolutely right. She It does, it, it's never just farce. These are human beings, including mm. her, with their weaknesses that are just completely easily cashed in on by, and in the rest of the um, whole of the series, it's the women that are able to um, basically very, very quickly expose the men's weaknesses. But in the case of Tanya, it's gay men who expose her yeah. weaknesses. It's, it's back to that bigger point that money is a source of power, but it also is a source of vulnerability in the series. Um, one small version of that you see is even between Ethan and Cameron. It's important to say that Ethan has just got rich. Of course, he's just suddenly become very wealthy. And now his relationship with Cameron has suddenly flipped over, you know, who's got more money now has changed the dynamic between them and means that he's no longer just a friend. He's also a kind of investment 
opportunity. And so suddenly the money both gives Ethan more authority, but also means that he's more prey, I suppose, to a more predatory or more cynical set of calculations for the people around him. And um, in the case of Jennifer Coolidge, it's quite simple. She's a, she's a brilliant comic actress, but she's also desperately vulnerable. And the Tanya story constantly goes back and forth between her being kind of a pantomime character who even when she's being kind of on the boat in her great kind of finale, when she talks about the gays are at me, it's a joke. The whole thing is so funny, but it's also so desperately sad. And, and what I thought was brilliant about this is actually a, a sort of nightmarish depiction of what it is to be a fag hag. That, you know, she's collected by these gay men as a trophy and she thinks, oh, they're my real friends. They just want to have fun. You know, finally, people who understand me because they don't. It's not related to kind of romance. It's not related to sex. I've got a different understanding with them. Um, and tragically, obviously, it's, they've got a different set of calculations instead. And I, I thought it was brilliant, the, the use of the gays as a as this sort of gay mafia. A decoy. Literally a gay mafia. Yeah. Um, as a way of both showing the dark side of the sort of sexual liberties of, of Sicily. You know, that the, the English character Jack at one point had said, oh, Palermo's amazing, people are just partying and having sex in the street. Well, yeah, some of that lack of restraint, it also includes you having sex with a man that you call your uncle. Um, that there's something, yeah, the depravity, I suppose, uh, was, was very interesting. And what's vampiric in, in aspects of gay culture. It's not an accident, these are gays who also really care about interior design and beautiful things and going to the opera. But at the heart of all of this kind of gilded consumption, there is something mercenary. You know, I thought Tom Holland was totally brilliant, um, including all those speeches about him being willing to die for beauty and so on. So I, I loved the, the, the vicious portrait, I think, of, uh, of homosexual desire as something that uses women only to, you know, in a way for completely instrumentalist purposes. Well, and was murderous in this case. Murderous, yeah. Although, I mean, I think at this point, the spoiler alerts are on, like, <laughs> I, you know, we, we, basically, we have spoiled it. If someone We've told has... you the whole plot now. But it was it was brilliant in the final episode because you didn't know who was going to get murdered. You know, at the beginning of the series, you're told there's some guests are dead, and they say, and Valentina says, how many? And they say, a few. And from that point on, you're thinking, well, how many is a few? And the, the brilliance of the final couple of episodes is you, each of those relationships was shadowed with potential disaster. Like all of the characters are in a position where they might be extremely vulnerable or you could imagine how they could be picked off or kill each other. Um, and it kept you guessing really till the final frames who was gonna be, who was gonna um, be, the, be the full guy or the full woman in this case. I think having a murder mystery thrown in is absolutely top class. That's what made, that's what stitched it up for me with a big fat ribbon and a bow on it. I just thought, they did that in the first one as well. It's so brilliant because it shows the way that all this fun stuff, you know, the, not, you know, the sex drive and the death drive run together. The mm. world of money and all the things it buys also, you know, death is, is inescapable and murderous impulses and it has this deep and a serious and a dark side. And I think that was just, you know, that, that menace that, that, that dogged the beauty um, was, was just such a, I don't know, just made for such a such a somehow rewarding and pleasing thing to see. And I think that's again, like there's a reason we all devour mysteries and thrillers. There there is something cathartic and satisfying as a viewer about having a murder thrown in. And we like, as you say, just to push that point of mystery further, I think it's interesting that as one of the moral lessons, I suppose, of the of the whole experience is that Harper and Ethan, you know, are liberal you know, honest couple who at the beginning are constantly saying, you know, how much better their relationship is 
than than the other couple because they talk about things and that they're honest and they're transparent. What the program shows is actually the failure of words to capture some of these subtleties, that words in a way are quite a blunt instrument for trying to map some of these ambiguous forms of desire and fantasy and resentment that are swirling around. And at the end, their happy ending, the thing that actually allows them to have sex is precisely when they abandon honesty in a funny way. It's when he has perhaps committed an infidelity um, that the situation can then be righted. So there's something, yeah, kind of maybe cynical, maybe a little mischievous, that what we see is that this supposedly liberal, enlightened, progressive couple, they end up having to kind of back away from those principles in order for desire to kind of come back. And so there's something about mystery and desire, and it's it's both played out erotically in these relationships. But I agree with you, it's also absolutely played out with us as viewers, that the mystery at the heart of it is what keeps you watching. That's so well put, Tombo. Now, we should um, draw to an end uh, soon, but one question before we think about the hype. Tom, when you started watching, for the first half at least, you were not that impressed. Do you Mm. want to just talk us through your, like, journey? (laughs) My journey was simply comes back to this thing about farce. But I'd seen a gloss saying, oh, it was about toxic masculinity. And the problem is, when you see these reductive statements, you just, you know, in a way, I watched it with that punchline almost always in view. And I thought, okay, I see what you're saying, yeah, jocks and bros that there's something unpleasant about these college roommate relationships okay fine i get it and um, i thought jennifer coolidge was clownish i thought it was just you know that whole sequence of her wanting to be monica vitti i thought okay yeah it's sad but you know again it, it felt like it was it, it, some of the types of the first series sort of just being played out all over again and um, the, the turning point for me was the palermo because it was the plot within the plot and suddenly there when you've got this other location and you've got a set of relationships that on first viewing I couldn't decode like I hadn't yet worked out this subterfuge and this intrigue and who really wants what from who and who is related to who and who is attracted to who all of that was so deliciously mysterious that suddenly there was a whole other level of intrigue in the plot and then the final two episodes I thought were nail-biting all the way particularly the final episode because you just couldn't work out who was going to be killed um I think one last thing I'd say, Zoe, it's also worth reflecting on in terms of how popular the series has been. Did you know that bookings at that hotel, the San Domenico now, are com- it's completely full up, I think, for most of 2023. It's amazing that, that a site which could be held up as, you know, having a slightly kind of tawdry set of associations and, you know, you see some of the sort of trashier sides of, of Sicily has not put people off. People can't, people desperately want to have that that night in the hotel. Yeah, I saw um, a piece in the Washington Post or something about your your White Lotus itinerary in Taormina. <laughs> you know, going to uh, Kefalu, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Palermo, and it was just too funny. It was like, yeah, well, I've been, you know, I've been to Kefalu, but I've been to Palermo and Taormina. Um, I was hoping it was going to be filmed in Ortigia, but uh, alas, not. Uh, but yeah, extraordinary that. But then we have that with, you know, people the killing and you know whatever it is people want to go on those you know the sex in the city tour but having it based in a hotel is obviously yes. going to lead to that but yes the sort of nobody's put off by the fact that it's a sort of house of death at the same time well and it says something about you know, how you build a kind of fan base that they too can live it i mean can you imagine going on a romantic holiday with your partner and staying in those rooms and having all of that potential like prehistory of whether you're having enough sex or whether you're sexually attracted to each other hanging over you while you're there. I don't know. Yes, I think um, it'd be a huge laugh. And actually that makes me think I should write an article about it. <laughs> there's a there's a gift for you, Zoe. So why the hype, Tom? 
Um, we've covered a lot of the key bases. All I would add that we haven't said, I suppose, is the quality of the acting, um, yeah. which I do think is really subtle. Um, it's a brilliant ensemble piece. Uh, obviously, Jennifer Coolidge is getting a lot of plaudits, but I loved Aubrey Plaza. I loved Harper. I also think Megan Fahey was incredible. Um, something inhuman about her, incredibly beautiful, uh, seemingly kind of like dead inside and, and a bimbo, but actually, as you say, with this this sort of inner fire and something quite ruthless um, about her. So yeah, I thought the performances also were totally brilliant. Uh, Zoe, why the hype? Interesting, rich people in gorgeous environments. Everyone loves Italy. Everyone loves Sicily even more. M- murder, death, sex, hookers, and not stressful watching fascinating amazing acting as you say just absolutely delicious plenty to feast on intellectually plenty to feast on you know it was almost like a text it was almost like a 19th century Mm. novel and to be able to do that in such a sleek way and with the charm I think of the Italians I think the locals made it really really charming the way they were speaking it you know the, the prostitutes the hotel manager the the girl who she you know Valentina the manager hits on all of them were so charming and provided such a sort of piquant antidote to the Americans. And, you know, they were just lovely to look at. Even Portia, Tanya's assistant, who's kind of a bit ungainly and weird. But sort of everyone was sort of fascinating to to look at. So that is why... I, I think she might be the connecting tissue, Zoe. I think Portia and Albie's honeymoon or like their first holiday away as a couple, they might be the characters now that go to White Lotus 3, which apparently is definitely going to be made. Oh, good. I cannot wait. I wonder where it will be. I wonder if the if any resort in Hawaii got booked out after. I don't think it looked that great from White Lotus 1, actually. It's interesting. I wonder if this effect is only applied to the Taormina White Lotus and if that's going to affect where they end up filming the next one. I think Southeast Asia is due, isn't it? Or Safari. I just oh, think there's, 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 all of these settings come with their own cultural baggage and their own political sensitivities. Yes. And I think you could do something great on Safari. Yeah, or Japan. Anyway, join us next time for a discussion of the Avatar sequel.